Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Afternoons with Bill Arnold. That would be me. You know, ever since David Wheaton has been helping us study the book of Genesis, I've been, I've been not, not been able to put it down. I think I read eight chapters today in Genesis, and I'm excited to go back and study some more with David. He's been uh, at this for about a year with me now, and I am just loving it. We're really entitling the series "How the Book of Genesis is Most Relevant for Today," and we're already up to chapter 40. So uh, David is, of course, the host of The Christian Worldview. You can always head over to thechristianworldview.org to learn more more about David and his writing and his outstanding radio program, but he's joining us today. David, welcome. Thank you, Bill. It's good to be with you today. Uh, Likewise. So let's uh, let's do, before we jump into chapter 40 of Genesis, let's maybe just do, like we always do, a little recap of maybe uh, Genesis 39 and maybe touch on some of the important points from last time regarding maybe Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Yeah, and and this chapter, Genesis 39, that we covered last time, is one of the most important chapters, I think, in the whole Bible. And it's we've talked about how this series we're doing, how the book of Genesis is most relevant for today. And this particular chapter has so much relevance for today because it really lays out the the game plan uh, for how to overcome the temptation to sexual immorality which was not only a big temptation back, you know, thousands of years ago when Joseph lived, uh, but of course is in our society today. It's Our society is unfortunately full of pornography, um, all sorts of different uh, kinds of sexual involvements that are outside God's design of one man and one woman marriage. And so th- this story of Joseph, I think, is just so helpful uh, for me, for anyone who has a desire to to live sexually as God desires and commands us to. So this chapter, just to go through a real brief um, review for anyone who, let's say, didn't hear our conversation last time, and this chapter starts out with with Joseph prospering in Egypt. You know, he's been sent down there. His brother sold him into slavery. He goes and gets sold into the, the house of Potiphar, who's the captain of Pharaoh's guard. So this man is a very high level of importance in, in the nation of Egypt. And so just by God's design, he comes into this very, very prominent home. And the Lord, it starts out this chapter with the Lord just blessing Joseph. No matter what happens, Joseph is always getting promoted to leadership. So in, in Potiphar's home, he's it's the first six verses, I won't read them, we did it last time, just about how the Lord was with Joseph, how the Lord was blessing Joseph, how Potiphar trusted him with everything. He was putting everything in Joseph's charge. And this is just a young man who's uh, basically a Hebrew slave mm-hmm. um, being favored so much. And then there's this big transition we talked about last time, Bill, in verse 6 of chapter 39. It says, now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And what an odd little sentence in the Bible. The Bible doesn't make too much emphasis out of those kinds of things. And you think, well, why would it say that? All of a sudden, after it just said how much Joseph was being blessed by God, and it's kind of like, well, that's nice. But it was really a, a a sign or a portent 
of something about to happen, and something that was about to happen was a major temptation in the life of Joseph. We discussed the fact that we need to watch out when things are going well for us in life. We need to watch out about becoming too self-reliant versus God-reliant, and that, that's when Satan really targets us and tries to bring us down. It's just in the same the example of the life of Christ after his baptism, where the, the Father affirmed who he was, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, and the Holy Spirit appeared like a dove, and this is this, this is monumental moment in the life of Christ. Right after that is when he was tempted by the devil in the wilderness. And so these kinds of things happen in our lives after times where things are going well, we're successful or something, that great temptation comes, and the temptation does come uh, to Joseph right away, his master's wife. So Potiphar's wife, it says in verse 7, looked with desire at Joseph, and she said to him, lie with me. Uh, and Joseph's response to this particular temptation, which he could have accepted so easily, uh, is really notable for us. It's very relevant for us. It's the model for how we can overcome sexual immorality. Uh, the first thing it says is he refused. I mean, right away, it was just he refused right away, and he said to her, Behold with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in this house and has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater th th in, the, in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. Then he finishes with this all-important line, how then could I do this great evil and sin against God? Joseph, Bill, wasn't primarily concerned about what if I get caught? Uh, how is this going to affect my, my work relationship with your husband? What if you get pregnant? You know, what if I get a sexually transmitted disease? Mm -hmm. He wasn't concerned about all those consequences. He was primarily concerned about how his actions would cause an affront, an offense to his God. And this is really the model for how all of us, what we need to think uh, when we're, we're faced with temptation. We have a choice. We can either choose to love and please ourselves, or we can choose to love and please God, because we have such a great love and fear of him. And, and um, Joseph, of course, chose to to honor God, and then, the, but that wasn't enough. Actually, it went from there. I'm sorry for the long answer, but this is—I think it's very important. Uh, the next thing that happens, she she persisted. She kept on trying to tempt him, mm -hmm. and eventually, it says that he actually left his garment in her hand. She was grabbing onto him, and he fled. And this principle of fleeing sexual immorality is is something that is repeated in the New Testament in First Corinthians six. It says, "Flee immorality. Every other sin a man commits is outside the body." but the immoral man sins against his own body. And this is the only sin that I'm, that I'm aware of in Scripture that we're not to confront, but we are to flee. And so there are really good principles here. Uh, there's a motivation. We want to please God in our lives. That's why we want, to, we want to overcome sexual immorality, and there's a way to do it. We need not to try to dally and kind of confront it. We need to get away from it because it's such a powerful temptation. And so uh, anyway, he gets thrown in jail as a result of it. He resists this, this, this woman. And she falsely accuses him of trying to rape her, which, of course, he didn't do, and he gets thrown in jail. And But then the chapter ends by saying that God was blessing and with Joseph when he was in jail, and the jailer, the chief jailer, put him in charge of everything. So again, the chapter starts with blessing for, for Joseph in Potiphar's house, and, and it ends that way even though he's in jail. David, I'm so glad we went back and reminded listeners of that. Uh, for Joseph, his highest authority was to the Lord. 
That that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. What how, when when we are close to the Lord, this yes. is why the Lord wants us to draw near to Him. When we're drawing near to Him, we start to think His thoughts, and we start to think of in terms of how our thoughts and our actions and our motivations. Uh, are, are they aligned with how our our Creator and King would want them to be? And that was very clear in the life, life of Joseph. It seems that for a lot of people, they will try to get away with what they think they can get away with. That's kind of the threshold. But Joseph yeah. shows up and says, no, 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 I, my highest authority is the Lord, and I do not yeah. want to grieve him. We all tend to look horizontally when we're tempted. We're looking around. Who's watching us? Right. You know, we were thinking, you know, subjectively about, you know, how can I get away with this and so forth. Where we should be thinking and looking is vertically, because we know that God is omniscient. He's omnipresent. He sees and hears every one of our thoughts, our our motives, our actions. And so we that, that's what a fear of the Lord is. Yeah. The, I think someone defined it one time as the continu, the continual awareness that God is watching and weighing every one of my thoughts, my actions, my motives, and I'm going to be held accountable to him uh, for blessing or for consequence someday, what those thoughts, what those actions, and what those motivations are inside of me. And that's what Joseph just exemplifies for us. He had a vertical uh, perspective in life. It wasn't about looking horizontally, what other people thought of him or trying to get away with things. It was, what does God think of me? Yeah, that's a solid and memorable image. So thank you for that, David. All right, let's jump into chapter 40, and I think we're back to talking about dreams. So how, how, do, how do dreams play such an important part in Joseph's life again? Yeah, well, you remember several weeks ago, we, we talked about the, the story of Joseph having these dreams when he was a little bit younger, mm-hmm. and, and the dreams were that his, his older brothers and his actually his family would be bowing down to him. And, and I think Joseph made a bit of a mistake in repeating those dreams to them. You, you kind of figured that wasn't going to be, you know, received very well by older older siblings, and it wasn't. They hated him because of it. But he had these dreams, and he interpreted them themselves like, you know, I get these dreams that you're all going to be bowing down to me, and you know, he spoke that to them. So now, you know, later on, I'm not sure exactly how much later it was, maybe a year or two later. Now he's been now he's been sold by his brothers down into to Egypt. And he's in jail now, falsely accused of trying to rape his master's wife, which he did not do. And he's in jail. He is, by the way, he's in jail. He's over the entire kind of the, the prison, the prison, uh, the people in prison. The, the, the chief jailer trusts him so much. And we open chapter 40 by seeing that Pharaoh has been offended in some way. It doesn't describe how, but Pharaoh's chief cupbearer, and Chief Baker have somehow offended the king, Pharaoh, and the king has put them in the same prison where Joseph is. Now, these are important people. The, 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 the cupbearer was the one who would taste the wine before Pharaoh drank it to make sure it wasn't poisoned. This is how, you know, this is how heads of state died back then. They were often poisoned. And so this had to be a very trusted position, who the cupbearer was, and the same thing for the baker as well, in charge of the king's a lot of his food. And so Joseph, here he is in jail, is put in charge of both of them. I mean, just imagine that. You have the highest court officials in Egypt, and this Hebrew slave is seen to have so much character that he's put in charge of who's in the jail. Well, these two men, the cupbearer and the baker, are in jail, and they each have a dream. And they wake up in the morning, and they're both very distressed about this dream. They don't know what it means, and, and Joseph sees them, and he says to them, uh, he says, why are your faces so sad today? 
In other words, and I think this gives us an insight into Joseph that he wasn't just some, you know, efficient uh, uh, organizer and successful person that knows how to do, you know, corporate management and so <laughs> forth. This is a person who has compassion, who's concerned about his fellow man. He looks at these these officials of Pharaoh and he notices something's wrong. A lot of people just let these things go, but he reached out and he in compassion, like what what's wrong with you today? And then they start to tell him about his dream, their dreams. And this is where, again, God uses Joseph's, the ability that God's given Joseph to interpret these dreams uh, to really change the circumstances and dynamics, not only of Pharaoh's life, what will turn out to be Pharaoh's life, but Joseph's as well. Yeah, this would be a good time to take a break. David Wheaton is my guest. We're continuing our study on the book of Genesis. After a very short break, we'll be back. We're in Genesis chapter 40. Make sure your Bibles are out. Genesis with David Wheaton, and awfully uh, glad to have him uh, on the program today. David, in chapter 40, verse 5, it, it, I don't think I've ever focused on why are your faces so sad today? There's Joseph being completely compassionate with uh, other people that he's um, in confinement with. Yeah, and it's a great lesson for us. Talk about relevance. I mean, they're all in jail. Right. <laughs> and then right. the jails back then we're probably not like the prisons today. I mean, no one wants to be in prison, but that you can imagine what the prisons were like back in back in this time in Egypt. It was probably a pretty Grim. difficult situation, right? Yeah. And, and Joseph again is is reaching out, uh, showing that he's not only a leader; he's always someone who's always being put to the front, leading people. But he also has this this servant leadership, compassionate mm-hmm. heart for other people. And so they, each of them, the cupbearer and the chief baker, tell them uh, the, the, the dreams they've had to Joseph. And he says this very interesting line. He said, then Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell it to me, please. So they're distressed over these dreams. They don't know what they mean. But Joseph beforehand is not going to take personal credit for the interpretations. Now, this particular time, I just did a little looking into this particular time in history, in this time, this era was false religion of this time. They, they had like an expert class of people who did dream interpretation. People in Egypt and the big empires at the time, Babylon, uh, there was a big market, you could say, for interpreting dreams. And so people who were involved in false religion would try to be dream interpreters. Uh, and to, to, in response to that, I think Christians today— we often ask, we have strange dreams at night ourselves. I really don't think we should put too much stock in dreams. The Bible really never does. It really mm-hmm. only in a couple different uh, places in Scripture, with, with Joseph interpreting these dreams in this particular time, then, of course, Daniel uh, interpreted dreams uh, when he was living in Babylon. So it's really only those two times. Other than that, it's not emphasized in, in Scripture. Matter of fact, it's, it's discouraged uh, from trying to look into what dreams mean. But anyway— Joseph actually interprets both of their dreams, and, and the, the dreams are completely opposite to one another. The, the, the chief cupbearer has his dreams about a vine and branches and clusters of grapes, and he's squeezing the grapes into the, the cup of Pharaoh, and Joseph interprets that for him, saying that in three more days, Pharaoh's going to lift up your head and restore you to your former office, and uh, only keep me in mind, Joseph says, when it goes well with you, and please do me a kindness by mentioning me to Pharaoh— and get me out of this house, 
for I was in fact kidnapped from the Hebrews. He wasn't only really kidnapped, remember, he was sold mm-hmm. by his brothers. I don't know if he was trying to be nice to them or what. And even here, I have done nothing wrong that they should have put me into this dungeon. So this was a very bad environment he's in. Again, he was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. And so he favorably interprets that dream for the cupbearer. And then the chief baker thinks, wow, that was a favorable interpretation. I'm going to tell him my dream, and maybe the interpretation of my dream is going to be as favorable, where it's just the opposite. The chief cup uh, baker tells his dream about baskets of bread on his head and birds coming to eat out of the uh, out of the out of the baskets that are sitting on his head. Well, and Joseph has to tell him the bad news that in three days' time, the Pharaoh is going to execute you. And so, just horrible <laughs> opposite interpretations of these dreams, and actually, they actually both come true, just as Joseph had said. It says in verse twenty-one that. Pharaoh restored the chief cupbearer to his office, and he put the cup into Pharaoh's hand again, but he hanged the chief baker, just as Joseph had interpreted to them. And here's a key verse, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. So, you know, don't let, don't let a, a good, good deed go to waste here. You know, this man was basically released from, from prison, put back into Pharaoh's charge, into, into his, his former career, his colleague was was hanged, but somehow the chief cupbearer forgot to mention Joseph, that who had interpreted the dream, and to get Joseph out of, of prison. It didn't, didn't come. Mm-hmm. But that set the stage for the next part we can discuss is the, the super promotion, the complete, unbelievable, worst to first, lowest in the country to highest in the country promotion that's, I think, ever taken place in the history of mankind that's just about to take place to Joseph in Genesis chapter 41. Yeah, let's move into that, uh, David. So in Genesis 41, uh, there it's at, at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream, um, yeah. and behold, he was standing by the Nile. Yeah, now just think about that before we get into Pharaoh. Now, Pharaoh's going to have a dream. And now we've gone from the chief cup cupbearer uh, cup and the baker having dreams and, and Joseph interpreting them. Then we, we flip the page in Genesis 41. Now Pharaoh is going to have a dream. But before we get into what that dream was, the, the first sentence there, it happened at the end of two full years. So Joseph was in this dungeon for two more years after favorably interpreting the cupbearer's dream. I mean, just think how much that would test you as a person. After you had honored God, you had done mm-hmm. nothing wrong, you were doing the right things, God was blessing you, but you're still in a dungeon. And it wasn't just for another week, another two weeks, another two months. It was for two full years that he was still mired in this dungeon, falsely accused, shouldn't have been there, unjustly been there, that finally Pharaoh has a dream, and Joseph knows nothing about it. He's just rotting in a dungeon. And Pharaoh's dream is, is, is again, troubling to him. He has actually, it was actually two dreams back to back. The first dream was about how there he saw seven fat cows standing by the Nile. And all of a sudden, seven other cows came up out of the Nile. Seven really gaunt, slim, and ugly cows came up and swallowed up the fat cows. And he woke up and he was disturbed. And all of a sudden, he has a second dream. And again, similar kind of dream. He sees seven plump ears of grain there. And all of a sudden, these seven other really thin and scorched ears of grains grain comes up and they swallow up the seven good ears. And Pharaoh wakes up and he's extremely troubled by this. What does this mean? It was similar stories. 
what does this mean? Again, they put a lot of stock in dreams back in. So he calls all his magicians and his wise men in Egypt. Who can interpret my dream? And none of them can in interpret the dream. But here's where the chief cupbearer has all of a sudden recalls what happened to him. He remembers how Joseph interpreted his dream. And so Pharaoh hurriedly calls for Joseph. They get Joseph cleaned up. He was unshaven, probably in terrible clothes, to immediately appear before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says to Joseph right away, he says, I have had a dream, but no one can interpret it. And I have heard it said about you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And again, look how Joseph deflects praise. And this is exactly what we should do when we're praised for something in life. We should not accept it like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm the great guy you think I am. Mm -hmm. Joseph says in 41 verse 16, says, Joseph then answered Pharaoh saying, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Again, he said the same thing he said to the cupbearer and baker. God is the one who interprets this. God is the one who's giving this to me. This is not me doing this. He deflects praise. He gives God the glory. Joseph tells Pharaoh, both dreams are one and the same, that the seven fat cows and the seven fat years of grain are basically seven years of abundance that's going to take place in Egypt, but they're going to be followed by seven ravaging years of horrible famine. And so in the repetition of the two dreams means that God's determined it and he's going to bring about this quickly. And so immediately Pharaoh's response is, um, <laughs> well, now what do we do? And uh, immediately right after interpreting the dream, um, Joseph rolls into a solution. He, he, he's, in other words, he didn't even know this was coming in his life. You know, that day he woke up, he wasn't thinking I'd be interpreting Pharaoh's dream. He thinks it's going to be another day in the in the dungeon, right? Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, he's brought before Pharaoh. He interprets the dream. But not only that, but he also provides an incredibly wise course of action to avoid the the horror the horrors of this famine that's going to be coming in seven years. He 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 provides a a solution. In other words, this man Joseph thinks so biblically and so logically and so reasonably because his mind is so aligned with God's thoughts that he can just in a spur of a moment come up with a plan for what Pharaoh should do. And he tells Pharaoh to look for a man discerning and wise to set him over the land of Egypt to try to store up grain during the seven years so they wouldn't run out and everyone die during the seven years of famine. And Pharaoh immediately sees this and recognizes that we don't need to look for a man that man is standing right in front of me. You are the man. You've been in a dungeon for two years. You may be a Hebrew slave, but there's no man in Egypt that we can find like you. And he called it, in whom is a divine spirit. That's how Pharaoh saw Joseph. But we know what that divine spirit was. That was the Holy Spirit. That was God himself. The spirit of God himself was inside Joseph, uh, giving him favor and giving him uh, favored by Pharaoh, and he's going to set him over the entire land of Egypt. Mm -hmm. David, I wish we had more time. We're already out of time, uh, and I have so much more to cover, so we're going to have to pick this up next time. So thank you for this uh, study. I'm just loving it. it it's a great study, it's... and the theme continues to be, Bill, that God sovereignly works through the, the circumstances of Joseph's life and even our lives today, even when they're hard, and turns them into good. Mm -hmm. David Wheaton's been my guest. Go to thechristianworldview.org. We'll take a short break. We'll be right back.
How is the church doing in terms of making a p- positive impact on the world today, or or what? So we're going to talk to Pastor Jeff Dodge. He is the teaching pastor at Veritas Church in Iowa City, and he's also an assistant professor of theological studies at um, Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Jeff, welcome back to the show. Yeah, thanks, Bill. It's fun to be with you. It is so fun to have you back on. I enjoyed so much. We talked about Titus, I think, last time, didn't we? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah that's fan- right. fantastic book, fantastic study, and so I was anxious to have you back. And I want to talk about a little bit of what's going on today in the church, yeah. especially with what's happened in our country in the last year. Oh, man. Oh, just a little bit? We're just going to talk a little bit? Just a little bit, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot. It, it's funny because my my mom is actually 94 years old and, and doing great. But I've said to her, I've said, uh, she, she will say things like, oh, man, things are so bad. I'm like, well, mom, I mean, you, you lived through World War II. You lived through the Civil Rights Movement. You lived through Watergate. You know, <laughs> She's like, no, I think things are worse now. Wow. Which kind of, you know what I mean? It's a little sobering. Um at the age of 94, that she there's something in the air culturally that she would say is, I guess, worse for whatever that means, but she's, she's unnerved by it. So that well, says something. Well, we have to listen to her wisdom because she knows what she's talking about. Right, right, yeah. So did sure. she give you any indication as to the specifics? Well, I think just the level of, like, hostility okay. um, between maybe the, the two sides of whatever issue it is, you know, that the polarization— mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. I don't know that she would use those words, but but that's how she describes it. You know, that in other words, like my, my folks, um, I'm sure had spirited conversations about all sorts of issues along the way, big cultural moments uh, that have come and gone. But they still, you know, neighbored well, uh, went to church, didn't, you know, leave a church over a political issue, whatever. You know what I mean? Like there was a um, more of a... a a civil way to approach these things, I <laughs> yeah. think, in the past, and and weren't quite the, the lines weren't quite as sharp, and and people not quite as hostile yeah. about their viewpoint. So I don't think yeah. I've heard I don't think I've heard that word used as a verb before. Neighbored, <laughs> yeah. But I really like yeah. that. I really yeah. like that because it it is uh, interesting how we are probably having less contact with neighbors. Yes, um, yes, yes. For simple reasons that we're masking up, and right most pull into uh, their back alley or their garage, yep. and they, they can avoid neighbors altogether. Right. Yep. No, and that's that's absolutely true. And and unfortunately, some of the, you know, more consequential political things that have gone on at a time mm-hmm. where we're most distant, you know, it's a lot easier to fire something off on social media than to stand face-to-face with a neighbor that you disagree with, you know, because the other side is humanized when you're actually looking right. at someone and they have a different viewpoint, but, oh man, they love their kids and they love this city and they love this neighborhood. And, you know, it's a little bit more disarming, but if you don't have that personal contact, you're just firing off at um, a viewpoint. You're just firing off at, you know, some uh, anonymous group out there or whatever. And that's a lot easier to get all fiery, um, uh, than if you're looking at somebody eyeball to eyeball, you know, mm-hmm. another image image bearer, 
standing in front of you. So, Yeah. Do you find that the church is making some positive inroads right now? Well, yeah, I do. And that's why I'm super encouraged. In fact, Good. even this morning, I mean, we're, we're in a university community here, and, and uh, I had a great uh, coffee time with a couple of students who are wrestling with things like immigration. And uh, one of them is um, her, her ethnicity is half Pakistani, half Puerto Rican. And she's had a number of encounters with people who are just kind of just in principle against immigration. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and she, you know, but with both sides of her family are like, well, man, really? Do, you just wouldn't want anybody immigrating here? <laughs> anyway, so um, being able to have some really just great conversation with her about uh, why people have those viewpoints, how she can engage with other people, and she's a follower of Christ, so she's really trying to work through just her personal hurt, right, and the offense that that is to her. Um, but then how, in the grace and truth of Christ, to engage people and actually, you know, build some bridges, even in conversations that are really uncomfortable for her. So, so I love, I love that, that, yeah, there's a lot of volatility, but I think there's a lot of Christ followers maybe finally seeing, um, man, have, have we thrown more gas on this cultural fire than we should have as followers of Christ? And what can we do to, to calm the waters and, and have respectful engagement with our neighbors, even secular neighbors that think very possibly differently than we do about an issue. Mm -hmm. Jeff, do you think we're putting people in categories faster than usual? Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, ben, ben Sass has this book, Senator Ben Sass, uh, called Them. And that's one of the things, kind of his thesis, is that we are just so quick to categorize people as them, you know, mm-hmm. blanketly. And we've got all sorts of those circles all over the place. And, uh, yeah, it's unfortunate because, you know, even as I was talking to this student this morning about immigration, I was trying to explain to her, um, you know, the the very different um, complexities of an issue like that and, and how, well, don't be too frustrated with people that are against immigration. Here, here are some of the legitimate reasons that people might be against immigration. And, you know, let's, but and you want to do that to all sides. Like, let's, hey, let's put the safety back on. (laughs) Let's let's have some civil conversation. And we might find that our disagreements are maybe not quite as strong and stark if if we could just settle down and have a conversation. Mm -hmm. What do you find is breaking your heart right now? Mm. Well, I think that when when it's not being done, when people are just quick to point at them, Mm -hmm. um, I... I've found probably the thing that breaks my heart is I guess we could expect that from more of a uh, a culture that does not bow the knee to Jesus Christ. But those of us who have sworn allegiance to Christ, um, man, I was just reading in James 3 not long ago, and, and he just hits this right, right straight on where he says, you know, if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast. Don't deny the truth. That wisdom doesn't come from above. It's earthly. Mm-hmm. It's unspiritual. It's demonic. <laughs> and, you know, envy, selfish ambition, this idea that I, I, especially that selfish ambition idea, I want to win. I, I want to clobber people with my viewpoint. I, I, I want to 
kind of crown myself as victor in this. But James says, no, the wisdom from above, it's pure, it's Mm peace-loving, it's gentle, it's compliant, full of mercy— uh, you know those those virtues, and I'm, I'm. If there's anything that breaks my heart, it's seeing people in the name of Christ take on well what James would say are demonic ways of having you know engagement instead of the the better way, right? The Jesus way, mm-hmm. of peace loving, gentle, and compliant, and merciful, and uh, and and I love how James even says unwavering, but without pretense. You know, it's not that we just give up the farm, you know, we, we're going to speak for truth, but we're going to do that without pretense. And we're going to do that with, with virtue, Jesus virtue. Mm -hmm. And then when I think Uh, about encountering every day with the lost and interacting with people who are outside of God's family, I'm writing Ephesians chapter two in the first mm -hmm. couple of verses, it says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit wow. who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Mm. Wow. Yeah. And we, we're supposed to be markedly different from that, delivered from that. Completely. Like that's how you used to live. Yes. Yep. But you've yep. been delivered from your sins and you you were once dead in your sins and now you're alive in Christ. But we're still engaging with people all day long outside of God's family who are in that place where they are right. uh, under the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's at work in those who are disobedient. Mm-mm-mm. So we're trying totally. to make an impact on the world, and we're trying to say to everyone we encounter, I want to be salt and light, and I want to um, show you the love of God, which isn't always very uh, easy. Yes, yes, absolutely. And, and unfortunately... If they see uh, pronounced anger in <laughs> us, um, yeah. it wouldn't matter what we say, right? I mean, we're we're going through First Corinthians as a church family, and we're about to hit First Corinthians thirteen in a week and a half. And you know, if I have the tongue of men and of angels, but if I don't have love, um, I'm a noisy gong. I'm a clanging cymbal. I'm an irritation in people's ears. So even if we have the most um, perfect phrasing of the viewpoint that we want to get across. If we're not doing that in love, if, if all they see is ang- anger, rage, um, we're an irritation in their ears. They don't actually hear any of our well-chosen words because we've, we've dismissed them with our lack of just Christian love, virtue. Yeah. Jeff, is it hard to be a Christian? Oh, man. <laughs> yes. Indeed. Indeed. And yet, I would say this. I, uh, I lived, you know, into my adulthood as an, an unbeliever, didn't come to Christ until I was in college. And yes, it is, it is absolutely hard. It wars against my, my flesh, right, to follow Christ. But there's so much joy. You know, there's so much peace. And, and when, I, when I do the right thing in the right way, in the Christ way, oh, there's, there's incredible joy and contentment in that. So, uh, yeah, difficult. But man, I just wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. And I, and, and I hate the, you know, the right guilt that I have when I try to do the, the, the right thing, but in the wrong way, right? Say um, more about that. Well, I mean, I love, you know, I'm, I'm kind of doing a riff on, on Francis Schaeffer, you know, where, where he talks about doing God's work in God's way. Oh, okay. You know what I mean? And sure. just that whole thing that, um, man, as followers of Christ, our character, who we are, 
has to align um, with the message that we're speaking. Um, it was a Pharisaic thing, actually, where Jesus wags his rightly accusing finger at the Pharisees and says, oh, those Pharisees, do what they tell you. Oh, but don't do what they do because they speak one thing, but they do another, <laughs> right? And he's, and he's castigating them. He's saying to his followers, don't be like that. Don't be people that actually know the right thing, but actually don't do them. That's Phariseeism, and they are condemned, right? So I'm just saying we've just got different marching orders as followers of Christ, and we have to take that very seriously. Yeah, and we got to keep the main thing the main thing. Oh, man, absolutely. We yeah. want people to know Christ. Yeah, and that's usually one individual at a time, isn't it? Yes, 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 100%. Yeah. I remember being yeah. at, a, at a men's uh, retreat it was a long time ago, Jeff, and there was probably 400 men in the room, and the leader got up and said, how many of you came to faith in Christ at a church service you heard or uh, a seminar you were at or a conference? And the handful of uh, hands went up. And then when he finally got down and said, how many of you came to faith in Christ because a single person took an interest in you and sat down and talked to you, and all the hands went up? Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Isn't that, that's telling right It's there. just so powerful to be reminding Man. all of us that when you take a risk and you say, I want to go and meet you and talk and, and have some serious beyond the kind of news, weather, and sports conversation, mm. you're going to end up uh, getting into, I, people are hungry for spiritual conversation. Oh man, absolutely. I just this last week I was I was teaching um down in Kansas City and then it was it was one of those just gorgeous beautiful days so I walked out um after the whole day was done at, back at the hotel walked out on the patio watched the sunset and there was one other guy sitting there um <laughs> by by this fire pit started talking about the sunset, you know, because it was it was dazzling. Uh, but ended up spending the next two and a half hours talking about Christ. And no kidding. It, it was like an Ecclesiastes moment where this was a guy not down and out, actually at the top of his game, uh, you know, 67 years old, uh, wealth, this young wife, this, da, 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 you know, and, and he's saying, man, I'm, I've got it all and I'm not satisfied. I'm not content, you know, and it was interesting. This is, this is when, you know, it's, it's just God at work because uh, at one point he said, uh, man, you go, he's, I, even a short time ago, if some guy would have come up, sat beside me, started talking about God and quoting the Bible at me, <laughs> I would have just got up and walked away because I don't need another, I don't need another Bible beater right. in my life. He goes, but man, something's going on here. You know, <laughs> in my mind, I'm just chuckling. Like, yeah, that's something going on is the Holy Spirit. Like my, I, I could have been, you know, anybody dropped into his life at that point. It was just God had prepared him to, yeah. uh, to just consider. So there are, there are people all around that want to seriously have eternal conversations. And if we instead replace that with politics or Ooh. anger yeah. or whatever, uh, man, we've lost a precious opportunity. I agree. Pastor Jeff Dodge is my guest. We're going to take a little break. We're going to come back in 90 seconds. I'm back with Pastor Jeff Dodge. 
teaching pastor at Veritas Church in Iowa, and you have kind of hinted to me right before the break, Jeff, that you were going to be doing something out of 1 Corinthians 13, that mm-hmm. love chapter, and I yeah. thought maybe you'd give us a little teaser, a little, little, little sneak preview on that <laughs> one. Well, it's actually pretty neat. One of our, our young emerging leaders is actually going to uh, take it, but I've been talking with him about it and and everything. And I, yeah, first Corinthians 13, sometimes I, my fear is that we have kind of assigned first Corinthians 13 to like wedding programs or, you know, whatever, some Hallmark (laughs) card. Mm -hmm. Uh, And sincerely, it it gives a beautiful uh, list, a definition of what love is. And so it's beautiful, but it's actually like almost everything else in the book of first Corinthians, very corrective, right? So there are actually more what love is not than there are what love is in that list. And it's a healthy thing to go through that and just say, wow, I've probably been defining love as I want to either give or receive it. And it's great to have God's word actually tell me what true love is and let God define love for me and to and have it be like a mirror to hold it up. Am I patient? Am I kind? Like, I don't, I don't know what you're thinking love is. If you're impatient and you're not kind, you know, et cetera. Um, no, actually, you're fooling yourself. And so it's a, it's really got more teeth, I guess, to it than we would maybe ascribe to it. Yeah, I feel like I look through this and feel like I'm failing on a bunch of levels. I'm, I'm not horribly right? patient. I can be kind, but sometimes I'm not. And I do right? have envy once in a while. Um, you know, so yeah. it's, yeah, you do kind of a checklist of this and you realize you got work to do. Yeah. Oh, oh man. I mean, I, I memorized it um, some time ago, some, some, a few years ago now, just because I found myself, uh, yeah, just needing to recalibrate uh, love in my life. And, and love isn't some abstract thing. It's here it is. This is, defi- this isn't, I'm sure even exhaustive of everything God would like to say about love, but it's certainly very practical and tangible and gives us something to shoot for as we try to mm-hmm. redefine and live out love. What is the kryptonite to love? Is it self-centeredness? Oh, man. Yeah, <laughs> oh, for sure, right? Yeah, I for don't know. Sure, because that's, that's truly Jesus as as embodiment of love. You know, in fact, we even love because he first loved us. And what did he do? Even while we were still sinners, he died for us. Like this self-giving, constantly other-centered Philippians 2 kind of love. And yeah, so for sure, if we're focused on ourselves, that's the antithesis, right, of, mm-hmm. of true love. And yeah. Jeff, don't we need to be instructed in truth and then reminded of it all the time? Oh, man. How yeah. quickly do I mean, we forget stuff? And we oh, one day yeah. we remember it, and the next day we have a hard time recalling it. What's with that? Oh, I've, I've even said that about, um, you know, I've, I've read the Bible a fair amount at this point <laughs> in my life. I see and, you have. And, and I and yet I'm telling you every day I go to just open my Bible not because I'm studying for something but just because I'm a follower of Christ and I want to hear from Him and man I, not every single day sometimes it's just good and I'm glad that I have read it but often at least there is something so remarkable in that book that I feel like I'm reading it for the first time you know I'm with you the the situation in my life the the spirit's just awakening of of, of something in my life. But it's it's fresh. It's a living book, and I need it constantly to to you know kind of guard my my path and to and to show me how to 
how to walk with him. Yeah. I don't know if you're big on scripture memorization, Jeff, but uh, mm-hmm. I find that it is the way that God reveals things to me more yeah. um, in, in bigger ways. Because yeah. if I repeat something in my head 500 times, I start to think about it differently. It's so true. You know, another thing I've been doing this year that I don't think I've ever done before as a whole practice is I'm actually listening to it as I'm reading it. So I've got my Bible open, but I've got this app that actually reads it in the translation I'm using. And just even from a a learning uh, level, it just goes deeper in, you know, things like memorizing, things like hearing, reading with a pencil in your hand. Mm -hmm. There are just different practices that we can do that kind of push it deeper into our subconscious. And as Christians, we've got to do all the above, right, to Mm -hmm. to get that deeply embedded into our souls. Yeah. Jeff, do you think that God operates most often in not obvious ways. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure, yep. And that's why we've got to be tuned in, right? That's why we've got to be constantly walking in the Spirit, because uh, He's not a tame God. He's bound to (laughs) do things in a way that we weren't expecting, and I want to be tuned in and walking with Him. Yeah. Jeff, if a thought comes into your head, do you know pretty much right away if the flesh is going to answer it or the Spirit's going to answer it? Wow. I wish I was that good. Unfortunately, <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately, I have to learn the hard way way too often. But that's, but that's what I love about the truth of the Scriptures. You know, like, like it says in 1 John, um, you know, if we claim to be without sin, we're, we're making God a liar. We, we still have sin. But when we know that we have sin, we confess our sins, and He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, right? There's, there's this constant interplay that we're supposed to have where, where, oh, there it was again. I blew it again. Oh, Lord. But, but an awareness and a transparency enough to say, ah, but in Christ there's forgiveness. I don't ever want to just get used to sinning. I want to be quick to repent, quick to respond, and find that also quick forgiveness and faithful love of God chasing me down. Yeah, it's um, a great a great reminder for all of us. I, I'm always... Uh, mindful of when you are in the Word, you're going to find a discovery. I think the Holy Spirit will reveal to you something fresh because God's oh, yeah. Word is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And you will, you know, I, everyone that I know says, I've read that verse a hundred times and today I saw something different in it. Right? Oh, completely. We're we're doing a thing uh, with our church family where we're encouraging people to just pray, read your Bible and pray, something really novel like that. We're really cutting edge <laughs> yeah. at Veritas. But, but one of the things we did was we passed out these cards that have Psalm 23, the Lord's Prayer, and then actually also the Apostles' Creed on there, and just asking people just every day, just pray through these. Let these be guides, you know, for prayer. And I found myself this morning, because I had been reading in Matthew, and then as I'm reading through the Apostles' Creed, like thinking, wow, it is significant that Jesus Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And that's, that's no, those aren't just empty words. There's, there's something really important that we need to hold on to with that divine Son of God. And Anyway, I'm just saying, like, some of those first truths, right, of the Christian faith suddenly kind of come to life, and you're like, oh, man, that's significant. I need to, I need to meditate on that. What does that mean? And, and how much do I need to treasure Christ all the more? And yeah, first truths seem to burst to the top of the surface all over again when we've got ears to hear. Yeah, and I think it's important that we're always trying to do our very best to encourage people just to be light in a dark mm. world. 
I yes. think that is such a great starting point. I don't know exactly what that means, Jeff. Maybe you could help us in the last minute we have. Yeah. Well, I'm telling you, I, funny because I was, again, I was just reading in Matthew earlier this morning. And when he talks about that city on a hill, mm-hmm. once again, it's it's to be attractive that God's church yes. would not be a fortress just lobbing missiles at culture all the time, but that we would actually be a city on a hill, a, a point on the horizon that people could point toward, to walk toward, to that it, it's to be a, attractive, right? And so all the more I'm saying, oh, that, that God would help us to engage with culture, even when we have to disagree, even when there's a a scandal of the gospel. We have to confront something in our culture because of the gospel, that there would be such, um, you know, humility and mercy and a hunger and thirst for righteousness that people would actually see that there's something attractive there, and they they find it like a beacon, just kind of calling them to a home that they didn't even know existed, right? So let it be, yeah. Yeah. Jeff, thank you so much. You're, You're really fun to talk to, and I enjoy having you on the show, and let's do it again soon. Oh, I would enjoy that, Bill. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Pastor Jeff Dodge has been my guest, lead uh, pastor at Veritas Church in Iowa. Take a little break. We come back. We've got Hour 2 Ahead, which, by the way, is Wednesday prayer series. Dr. Peter Kafter and I will be hosting it with Becky Pipper today. We can hardly wait. Be back in a minute. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.